0: Our text today is from Matthew 20. It's part of a context, part of a a larger context, that you could almost call comic. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to play this, this little clip, this silly little clip because it shows all of these people missing, totally, totally missing the point. Nobody's communicating. They all have different points of view. And so in the text that begins in Matthew 19, 16 through verse 34, you have the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell all you have. And the rich young man goes away sorrowful because he's unwilling to part with his wealth. Followed by Peter saying, Well, what's in it for us? And then our, our text for today, which Skip Johnson, a commentator, says uh, resembles a Monty python skit. And in some ways, it does. Because you have Jesus over and over and over again talking about discipleship. And then you have the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and saying, Oh, by the way, could my son sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? And it sounds like Monty Python talking about a king and how a king gets elected and who Britons are. It's embarrassing to realize, I think, that there are modern day counterparts to this. You don't have to look very far. Uh, counterparts in our in the larger culture, counterparts in the church, for that matter. Uh, what's in it for us? Can we have the seats <clears throat> pardon me, the seats of power? And like I said, I want to make sure that this is perfectly clear. It doesn't only exist in the church. It's throughout our culture. Look at how we posture ourselves, how we treat one another, how we we strive for power. And then you have Jesus having an entirely different conversation with his disciples. The sermon's title is, We Want to Sit at the Head Table, but I, I thought another title might be, uh, Three Questions for Jesus. And I've organized the sermon really around that idea of three questions that are asked of Jesus. The first one really uh, comes from Peter. Uh, Peter, after hearing Jesus' dialogue about the rich and how difficult it's going to be for them, says, well then, what what are we going to have? What will the, we then have? What will we get? What are the benefits for us? How do I get the goods? Those are all very similar questions on the theme. I grew up in a church, that, that, a church tradition that loved uh, songs with, with big choruses. Uh, we loved bass leads and things like that, and Stamps-Baxter was a favorite uh, songwriter combination that we liked. Any, almost anything Stamps-Baxter that appeared in the songbook was a good song. There was one song called Mansion Over the Hilltops. We're not the only ones that sang it, but it was sung a lot, especially in the South. I'll give you one cor- one verse and a chorus just to give you a theme of it. I'm satisfied with a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver-lined. The chorus, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander but walk on streets that are purest gold. And Bev and I got to thinking about that simultaneously, although we would not talked about it before this, and we were both going, I don't think I can sing that song anymore. In fact, we, we came to call it the Christian materialism song. Uh, not only because of the way that it misunderstands what Scripture says about heaven and what God is doing and all of that, but also in, in, the, in the thought that it misses the point of what is true and right and good in the world and reduces all that to gold and to material pursuit. This really sounds more like what Joel Osteen would say or Creflo Dollar or people of that ilk. It really sounds like their theme song but not the theme song of Jesus. And it's that same spirit that's really present with the disciples. So you have the disciples saying to Jesus, so what are we going to get? What are we going to get? What are you going to give to us? That idea sometimes shapes my prayers. Does it yours? You sometimes pray to Jesus along those lines. What am I going to get? Or I'd like for you to give me this. And it's very counter to the spirit of Jesus. Skip Johnson again writes that the whole chapter is fraught with reversals. We've talked a lot about the reversals that Jesus uses in the Gospels. They're all over. But he says the first will be last. Uh, The rich, who we consider to be blessed, will actually have the hardest time entering the kingdom. By the way... Uh, I'm in that group, and I understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, You're in this group. By living in the United States, you're part of that group. Uh, We looked recently at the parable of the workers, and the workers hired last in the day who worked one hour were paid the same wage in the parable as the people who worked 12 hours that day. And if if we listen to that parable correctly, we're offended by it. But it's what Jesus did. He just turns everything on its head. He reverses everything that we think is right and good in the world. Jesus came to be served, rather. He came to serve rather than to be served. But isn't being served what we expect of royalty? You know the, the Queen Mother's having financial problems and is having to uh, to think about creative ways to raise money. They're talking about opening uh, Buckingham Palace to tourists in order to raise money. And it's because we believe royalty is there to be served. They're being they're there to be to be given things and to be courted by their their people. Jesus says that's not why I'm here. And Jesus says sometimes blind people have the keenest eyesight. Ironic isn't it? That the blind can sometimes have the keenest eyesight. Well, what the disciples will get is not what they expect. No doubt Peter's thinking along very materialistic lines. No doubt uh, the mother of James and John is thinking along those lines. And Jesus says, "Um, that's not what I'm about. And if you're my disciple, that's not what you get. That's not what I'm concerned about. But it's really not something to be concerned about because we all, every one of us knows that the good stuff in life is not purchased. Uh, I know that you've had this experience. Some days I go home from officing in Starbucks and I'll tell Bev about some conversation that I had that made my day. You can't buy it. It, it's not available on the stock market. You can't go into a store to get it. But it's because of a relationship. Or you get an opportunity to do something. You go to some sick person's house and you cook a meal for them or you something like that. And you, you go home and you think, that was just the greatest thing. I wouldn't trade for that. But you can't buy it. Second question. First question is, uh, what are we going to get? Second question is, what do you want? What do you want? Do you like it, Abba, the singing group? Um, I'm not so much a Abba lover now as I used to be, but uh, had all of their stuff and really enjoyed them. Bev and I went to see Mama Mia. And Watch baby boomers dancing in the aisles, you know. One of their songs was Money, Money, Money. And uh, the spirit of money, money, money is what you think it would be if you listen to the words. And this question is, what do you want? What do you want? Uh, We don't know why the mother of James and John was with the group. I've always thought that was kind of... uh, Odd that she was tagging along with Jesus and his disciples, but she was there, uh, and we don't know if there were other mothers there. Maybe they were. Maybe these were Italian mothers. I who knows, you know. But they they were there, or she was there at least. We don't know what motivated her. If she was curious or. Maybe she would heard Jesus talking about kingdom and all that sort of stuff and saw an opportunity for her boys. But we do know that she has selective hearing. Just a little switch. She flips off and on. And so she's listening for stuff. And I think it was Jesus' statement that goes like this, at the renewal of all things, this is Matthew 19, 28, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. And she goes, Eureka! I'm going to ask him to put my boys at his right and left hand. Those were the two seats of power next to the king. Selective hearing. She didn't hear the part about leaving fathers or brothers or sisters or mother. She didn't hear that. She didn't hear the part about how the last will be first. Didn't hear that. She heard kingdom. She heard power. She heard thrones. But who wants to think about those sorts of things? I don't really like the idea of giving up power. Sometimes I'm a control freak and admit it. Who likes to give that up? Who likes to be weak? Who likes to be vulnerable? Uh, I like the stuff I like. Maybe she was just being a mother. Who could want their child to be in a situation of subservience? I've heard about parents that actually discourage their children from going into ministry because it would mean lower salaries, and, unless you're Joel Osteen, and, uh, and a harder life. You don't want to do that. Be an engineer, be a doctor, be a this, be a that, but don't be that. Maybe, maybe that's what was coming out of her. Even churches have a hard time grasping this. Uh, I've heard churches talk about making somebody a deacon because they were good guys and they've been an important part of the church. And let's give them this sort of as a reward. For their hard work, never hear the idea of reward attached to service. Do you? You think that's what Jesus was talking about? I don't. So I think the second question is an important question as well. What do you want? What do you want? Maybe it's a a way of refining my own thought process and thinking about what I put at the top of my list. What is most important to me? What do I strive for? What do I pray about as I seek to be Jesus' disciple? The last question is, what do you want me to do for you? Pablo Jimenez writes that Mark, understand this is Matthew that we're talking about this morning, but Mark tells the same story, and he bookends this story with a story of two healings of blind people. Um, in Mark eight twenty two, there's a blind man unnamed in Bethsaida that Jesus heals. And in Mark ten forty six, there's Bartimaeus of Jericho who Jesus heals. So these two bookends. So Mark seems to be making a point here about blindness and what we see. It's as if Mark and Matthew are saying sometimes blindness is not apparent to the blind. You ever known somebody that was blind but they didn't know it? And and you you go, how did you not see that? How did you not know that you offend everybody who knows you? How did you not know that? Uh, How how did you not see that tear flowing down somebody's cheek? How did you not see that? In fact, I had somebody not terribly long ago say to me, I I just missed those cues. I I don't see those things. And I want to go, how do you not see them? These two healing stories are about two men that were blind, who knew they were blind, and said, here's what I want you to do for me. I'm blind. I want to be able to see. Please heal me. And that's juxtaposed, that's put right side by side with the incredible blindness of the disciples who we least expect to be blind. I mean, they've got advantages. They're disciples of Jesus. They spend all their time with him. We least expect them to be blind. But they are. Uh, I like a, there's a painter named Beverly Doolittle who who I like Bev and I have seen her work over at, at uh, Do you you smile Do you know her her work Okay, uh, we've seen her over in the Bay Area at uh, some things. Uh, would you show that one? I think uh, that's the one. So this is Beverly Doolittle, and uh, if you look, if you concentrate, you will see faces staring back at you in the landscape. And sometimes her work is it's harder to see those faces but they're still there. And I see Judy counting because you know it kind of draws you in and you start going, how many are there and are there faces that I've missed? And I think Beverly Doolittle is sometimes like like Jesus. you know he paints pictures for us. He, he gives us truth, and it's there to be seen, but we have to concentrate. We have to focus on what he's drawing for us. It's really easy to be self-righteous. Uh, the Israelites saw ten incredible plagues that defeated the Egyptians, resulted in their being released to go to the Promised Land, and not very many days later when they come to the Red Sea they don't believe that God can deliver them and they're scared out of their wits and we go how, how did you not see that how did you not have that experience and have this experience or there's the twelve the twelve disciples who saw Jesus feed five thousand people and then turn around and when Jesus says will you feed these three thousand they say we can't do it And I want to go, how did did you not see that? How did you not understand that? How did you not have the faith that Jesus wants you to have regarding this event? There's a Jewish leaders which we talked about recently that demanded a sign from Jesus. No doubt came from the blindness that was their own creation. George Hunsberger comments that about the contrast between the perspective of Jesus on weakness and that of the disciples on the benefits of following Jesus. Jesus talks about weakness. The disciples talk about benefits. What am I going to get out of this? I I know a lot of churches that pitch the gospel that way. What am I going to get out of it? And it's not that there's not going to be benefits to following Jesus. There will be. But Jesus wants me to follow him because of the righteousness of doing it. In spite of the cost that it may cost me. Jesus says, the son of man will be handed over to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and on the third day be raised. He says this on, on the way to Jerusalem. The message of Jesus was the message of the cross. The message of the disciples was the message of glory. They, they saw routing the Romans, getting rid of the Romans, defeating the Romans, getting the Romans off their throats. And Jesus saw weakness and ultimate victory of a spiritual sort. Very, very different messages. So the three questions, again, what are we going to get? What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? I'd like to leave you with a question. What would the modern day church look like if it was committed, totally committed, gangbusters committed to the theology of the cross rather than a theology of glory? What would it look like? How would it respond to the world around it? What would people who observe it say about it if we did that? What would they say about us? I think that's worth considering and thinking about and praying about. And maybe in that question will be some ways that that you and I likewise could change. Let's pray. Dear dear Father, our world bombards us with messages of power and entitlement. Like the mother of James and John, we want to ask, what's in it for me? Please help us to know in ways that most people don't know how your cross shows us how to live in a way that is far more blessed and empowered than any other way. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.